Well, good day. <laughs> it's so good to be back. It's so good. It's like coming home. Marg and I are homeless waifs, as she likes to say. We uh, sold our house in Kilsyth South and then uh, planned to buy another one, but nothing has come up that's downsizing size. And so friends in our church at, at Kilsyth have a, a unit down on Safety Beach. So they said, would you like to stay there until you find a place? And, well, <laughs> it was a no-brainer. So we're there. So um, coming across here was an easy-peasy this morning because there was no traffic and so it's so good to be back. And I even got a hug from Mrs. Huggable. <laughs> anyway, um, we'll be catching up with uh, you guys uh, over the next few weeks. I have uh, been, I prayed about what I should share uh, in these uh, number of weeks that I'm here with you, other than next week, which is Mother's Day, which will be a special service. And <clears throat> I just felt the Lord led me to uh, the book of Acts, but based on the words of Jesus, the five words that he, he uttered um, in anticipation of the book of Acts, where he said, I will build my church. I will build my church. And Jesus said, I, I will build my church. He's the builder by his spirit. He says, I will build my church. That there's going to be huge challenges. Uh, there's going to be opposition. There's going to be incorporating Gentiles, which was a, a huge thing for the early church, which was basically Jewish until that happened. Uh, there will be persecution. There'll be false teachers. But I will build my church, Jesus said. Build. He, he will build, he says, his church, it, it, there's many components to the building. There's the foundation, there's the, the uh, structure, the leadership and the teaching and the mission and everything that's involved in building the church. I will build my church. It's not your church. It's not the elders' church. It's not the pastor's church. It is... Jesus said, my church. It's not Peter's church, the Apostle Peter. It's not Paul's church. It's not an overseeing administration or um, a, a denominational uh, church. It is his church. I will build my church. And the word church is called out ones, those who are called out to belong to a new community that the Lord has unified into one community from a diverse group of people from all over. The church is not disconnected from the early ministry of Christ, but a continuation of it. And Acts is like a, the book of Acts is like a bridge between the Gospels and the, the established church. Can you imagine the New Testament without the book of Acts? Finish reading the four Gospels. Next minute, who's this Apostle Paul that wrote to the Romans and to the Corinthians and to the rest of them? Who is he? Where did he come from? Why has he got so much authority? 
Where did the church come from? I mean, suddenly you're into Romans, to the church, the elders of the church in Rome. What's the church? And what about the presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit? You see, the book of Acts actually is that transitional book that, that links it all together. It's so important. It is a historical narrative with, with a theological base. And it's really an important book in the New Testament. So today I'm looking at the topic of absent yet present. And I've asked Hannah to come and read from chapter 1 and chapter 2. Hannah, if you could do that now, and we will uh, then get into the message, the main message. Thank you. Thanks, Keith. All right, I'm going to do two, um, two readings. And the first one is from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptised with water, but you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he said these things, he, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he uh, went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And the second reading is from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them as, and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Alamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God and all were amazed and perplexed saying to one another, what does this mean? But, the, but others mockingly said, they are filled with new wine. Thanks, Kate. Thank you, Hannah. Well, how many times have we sung 
God save our gracious Queen. And, you know, every time I now try to sing God Save Our Gracious King, I get suddenly balked because I'm used, so used to singing Queen, right? Does anyone else have that issue? <laughs> because our Queen died after 70 years of reigning or over 70 years on the throne, she died. And we now have a new king, as we know from last night's uh, coronation. The queen is absent from this world now. But she's not present. King Charles III is reigning now, not Queen Elizabeth II. But with our Lord, he's absent he died, he rose again, he went back to heaven and he is absent, but he's present. His spirit is here among us. He will build his church by means of the Holy Spirit. He ascended into heaven in chapter 1 of Acts and the spirit of God descended on the church and filled the church in chapter 2. Absent yet present. He by his spirit now builds his church. And even in the first verse of this very book, it says, the former book I wrote about all that Jesus began to do. There's a huge implication there. He began to do all that happened in the Gospels. Now he's continuing. He is continuing to do. He is building this church. He is building the church, his church. He's doing it. For us today, there's a primary application that the book of Acts is an unfinished book. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's going to be solid, secure, right to the end, he says. And, uh, and the angel said he will come in like manner. When he comes back, that's the end of the church period. The church will be raptured and go to be with, his, with our Lord at that time. And the church age will end. But until that time, he will build his church, including uh, 2023. He builds his church, first of all, through those who embark on his mission. And I mean by that, those who respond to his call to discipleship. Jesus chose, um, humanly speaking, apostles who were back then inadequate, fearful, lacking in understanding how they couldn't grasp things that Jesus was trying to teach them. Their faith was weak, but he chose them and invested time and energy and teaching in those disciples who he called 12 of them to be apostles to go and to build his church. They were commissioned by Christ. Remember the Great Commission, but also here in verse 2 in chapter 1, we read, after giving instructional commands by the Holy Spirit. Interesting that at the beginning of this book, that when Jesus physically stood in their midst and gave them commands after his resurrection, it says, by the Holy Spirit. 
Again, emphasizing the whole role of the Holy Spirit in the, in the church, building of the church. The Great Commission says, um, by the way, the primary verb in the Great Commission is make disciples. So you could read it this way. Make disciples uh, as you go into all the world. Make disciples. That's what I'm calling you to do as you go into the whole world. The greatest event in history would be wasted if you don't proclaim my gospel to the whole world, Jesus is basically saying. Lo, I am with you at the end of the Great Commission. What does he say? Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age, including 2023. teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And I just gave you a commandment to go into all the world. So that's the last commandment, to go. It couldn't be plainer, simpler. They were commissioned by Christ. But secondly, they were convinced by, of Christ. They had come to a place, as it says in verse 3, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days. They heard they felt and touched him. They saw him eat bread. He was real. The now prince was still in his hand. He's the only one in heaven when all is finished and all who are in heaven will receive their resurrection body. He's the only one that's going to have a marked body. The now prince. Many, it says, convincing proofs. He showed himself with many convincing proofs, demonstrative proof. When I um, went in 2016 and had my PSA checked by the doctor, it was elevated. So the doctor sent me to a specialist and I had an MRI and there was a little lump or a big lump in my prostate. So the, then they sent me to have a, an, a biopsy. And by the time they got through all the testing and checking and lab reports and everything, they came to the conclusion that absolutely I had, definitively I had cancer. And of course, they removed the, the prostate. But the point is that uh, when you first notice a, PSI, a PSA going up, it doesn't mean you have cancer. It could be some other thing pre pressurising your, apparently, there could be other reasons for it. So you go through these tests till you come to what um, I, I'm using here as demonstrative proof that that is so. And so it is with the same idea here uh, with the apostles, that there was demonstrable proof that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And in our legal system, justice is administered often based on the testimony of witnesses alone. Yet... Those witnesses have to stand up under examination. And we have never seen, who has seen Jesus physically in the flesh here or online? I mean, there's no hands going up and there shouldn't be, unless you're crazy. But I know he's risen from the dead and you do too. Because of the reliability of the witnesses that have been challenged down through history and shown to be standing firm 
on the truth of the doctrine that Jesus is Lord, that he's risen from the dead. So in, in chapter 4, verse 20, um, they commanded them not to speak or, or teach in the name of Jesus, but Peter and John replied, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. How convinced are you of Christ, of who he is? Have you searched for yourself? If you're a younger one and you're off to university or into the workplace, you're going to be challenged left, right and centre about your faith. And if you haven't researched it in advance and really checked it out and read and and reasoned and thought it through, you're going to be challenged to a point where you could easily stumble. There's so much pressure out there. Peter said in Matthew 16, in the context of when Jesus said, I will build my church, notice what Peter said. You are the Christ, the son of the living God, said Peter to Jesus. And Jesus answered him, on this rock, not you, Peter, you're a pebble. The word Peter means pebble. But on this rock, the rock of the, the, the confession that Peter had made, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus responds on that rock, on this rock, I will build my church, on that truth, that foundational truth, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So Jesus said, I will build my church, talking about those who embark on his mission. But secondly, he says, I will build my church through those who embrace my mission. It's more than one thing. It's more than just going along with the embarking on this mission, but it's actually embracing it, saying, yes, I will fulfill this mission. I will do it. His mission is to take the gospel into the whole world. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus gave the apostles no specific details on how they were to accomplish the mission. Well, it's not recorded anyway. He just said, go and do it. That's your mission. And they, they, the context of that was verse 6 where they said, Lord, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They couldn't get out of the mindset that the Messiah was just going to look after Israel and reestablish Israel as the great nation that it used to be. Uh, remember on the road to Emmaus, they said sim similar things, the two disciples there when Jesus met them after his resurrection. And, and they said, we had hoped that he was the one who would redeem Israel. And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times or the dates that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will be my witnesses in Judea and, and throughout the end of the, to the end of the earth. <laughs> That's the context. The preaching of the gospel was right at the centre of how the early Christians understood themselves and their role in the world. 
Mission is an integral part of what it means to be a church. Mission is an integral part of what it means to be this church. All right, his mission was to take the gospel into the whole world, but his mission continues until his return in verses 9 to 11. The ascension marks the commencement of their mission. And um, even Jesus, in a prelude to this, um, remember when we were going through John's gospel a couple of years ago, uh, in chapter 16, where it says, But now I am going to him who sent me, and it is to your advantage that I go away, Jesus said. For if... I do not go away. The helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness and judgment. Jesus returned to heaven and sent his spirit to fulfill his mission. So Jesus said, I will build my church, one, um, through those who embark on this mission, Two, through those who embrace this mission and, and make it happen. And thirdly, through those he empowers to fulfill his mission. Someone has called the book of Acts, which we call the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Holy Spirit. That's a good description of the book. The birth of the church was an event in history as much as the birth of the death and the death and the resurrection of Christ. It was a, a special event, as we'll see. First of all, they received the Holy Spirit. That's how he empowers the church. First of all, receiving the Holy Spirit. You will receive power, it says, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses, Jesus said in verse 8 of the previous chapter. Now in chapter 2, Pentecost, the transformational event the beginning, the birth of the church. The word baptizo, to baptize in the Holy Spirit, is used seven times in the New Testament only. The first five of them are all prophetic, where Jesus spoke, or John the Baptist spoke, of a future event when people would be baptized in or by the Spirit. Then there's one that's historical, of uh, talking about when it actually happened, and then there's one that is theological, that actually gives a reason and a whole purpose and what, what uh, the truth about the baptism of the Spirit is, and that's found in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, the only verse that explains baptism by the Spirit. And it says, for we are all baptised, says, says Paul, talking to Christians, we are all not just some and others, you need to come forward and get baptised. Not, nothing like that. For we are all baptised by one spirit into one body. And we are all given the one spirit to drink. It is the moment of conversion. It is when you enter into, by putting your faith in Christ, who died for you and rose again, and you trust him to be your saviour at that moment, you are baptised by the Spirit into the body of Christ. You are then incorporated through that into the living union with Christ and with all God's people who also are indwelt by the Spirit. That's what baptism of the Spirit is. 
We are indwelt permanently by God's Spirit. We're empowered and enabled to live Christ-like lives and to serve Christ with the gifts of the Spirit. And then we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to witness. That is, that flows from the baptism or receiving of the Holy Spirit. In Luke chapter 24, verse 47, Jesus says, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, and in other words, the Holy Spirit, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The resurrected Lord Jesus said this to his disciples before he went back to heaven. When you'll be clothed with power from on high. And uh, that powerful witness it was evident in the early church, as we'll read in, in Acts chapter 4, verse 31, where it says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. They went out and shared the gospel with boldness because of the power of the Holy Spirit who was given rule in their lives. And in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, and there's other passages like that, but our gospel, gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So they, um, he empowers those who, to fulfill his mission. First of all, they received the Holy Spirit. Secondly, they showed proof of the Holy Spirit. I mean... Who would know whether they were going to be filled with the, whether they were filled with the Spirit or not, whether they were baptized by the Spirit or not? Who would know if nothing happened? So maybe it didn't happen. Maybe today we'd look back on that event and think, oh yeah, well nothing happened. How do we know the Holy Spirit descended and and indwelt the church? Well, there were three signs. These were natural phenomena that were transformed into supernatural. The wind, no, sound of the wind. There was no wind. There was the sound of the wind, the tongues of fire, and the gift of speaking in a foreign language, gift of tongues. Three natural phenomena. Isn't it interesting? When the first covenant was established and Israel was birth as a young nation on the mountain when God appeared to the nation there were three natural phenomena that God used to show his power and his authority and his presence they were what wind fire and a voice and now the beginning of the church the birth of the church you have the same three wind fire and voice, supernaturally proving this is a, an event of such importance. The sound of wind speaks of power. Imagine sitting in a room like this here and suddenly the noise is so loud. It's like, have you ever been in a hurricane? And the, the noise of the wind, I haven't, but I've heard it online. <laughs> But hey, apparently it's really loud. Imagine sitting here, there's no movement of air, but the sound is there. And everyone recognises it as wind. Not just there, but people came from all over because they heard it. 
all over Jerusalem to where they were. The word spirit is the word in the Hebrew, roch, and in the Greek, which is pneuma, from which we get pneumatic drills and all the rest of those words that use that. Um, both are, for the spirit, the word wind or breath. Remember when Jesus... I'm oh, not to walk away from this, am I? So, there you go. Um, Remember when Jesus was in the upper room? Oh, no, no, sorry, it wasn't the upper room, but it was after his resurrection when he appeared to them in John's gospel and he breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. In anticipation of Pentecost, he breathed, saying that the Spirit of God who indwells you on that day of Pentecost, when that happens, you need to know it's my breath. It's my Spirit. The sound of wind. Secondly, the tongues of fire. Uh, wind speaks of power. Fire speaks of purity. Remember the burning bush. You're on holy ground. Take your shoes off. God, it says in Hebrews 12, 29, is consuming fire. Revelation 1, 14, his eyes were like blazing fire. God is of pure eyes and to behold evil and cannot look on sin, the Bible says. Symbolic of the holy presence of the God of glory. Mind you, it wasn't fire. It was tongues of fire. Tongues as of fire. It looked like fire. It didn't burn their hair. It was symbolic and it was visual and it was real. Thirdly, wind speaks of power. Fire speaks of purity. The gift of languages, I say that purposefully, or the gift of tongues, speaks of purpose. It emphasizes the universal nature of the gospel because they spoke, these people who are Galileans and others from around, um, yeah, mainly Galileans and others from around Israel um, who didn't know all these other languages and dialects, suddenly they were speaking, praising God and telling of his great works in the mother tongue of some of the people who were there who'd come all the way from northern Africa and other places around the world of the day, and they heard them speaking in their own tongue. Wow, where'd you learn that? That's perfect. It doesn't even have an accent. It wasn't them. It was the Spirit of God giving them an ability to absolutely cause them to think something's happening here. God is at work here. Symbolic of purpose because uh, those 12 languages that represent the 12 racial groups that are listed out purposefully in chapter 2, they're there for a reason to help us see and the early church to see that God wants the gospel to go out to every nation. My uncle David Glasgow and his wife Kathy in, in Northern Territory are retired now. But he um, has just 
He, he, both of them with Whitcliffe have um, translated the New Testament into the local dialect in Manangrida where they were working for many years in Arnhem Land and they've just now put together another, um, a, a whole Bible written in, um, in English that is easy English uh, and, and using words that uh, the indigenous people in that area or in the indigenous people of Australia um, understand and use in their uh, everyday uh, talk. And uh, it's an amazing thing to get the gospel out in different languages so that people can read it for themselves and hear it for themselves. And that was the idea here. And it's a good, just like the Mount Sinai with the uh, wind, fire and voice and the burning bush with uh, the fire we have the Tower of Babel in the Old Testament as something to refer to here, where in the Tower of Babel, it was a reversal of the Tower of Babel here in, in, at Pentecost. In the Tower of Babel, um, uh, there was unity. Uh, no, there was no unity. It was a breaking up. It was going, uh, trying to get up to God, and now um, God and God caused all sorts of languages to originate from that time to stop them in their false beliefs. But now it's a reversal because everyone is united, not, not spread out, but drawn back into unity uh, by the coming of the Holy Spirit. And they also demonstrated the power of the Holy Spirit. Finally, um, they demonstrated. They received the Spirit. They showed proof of the Spirit. And now they demonstrated it. Peter stood up and preached and also all those who spoke in those foreign languages were used by God. Both of them were used, all of them were used by God to really bring conviction by his spirit. And thousands turned to Christ at that time and took the gospel back with them to their places of uh, where they came from. In, they were just in Jerusalem for a special feast and that was it. They were heading home and taking the gospel with them. Their witness, as we find in um, the, the last verse there, they were to be witnesses in Jerusalem, then Judea, Samaria, and to the whole world. Jerusalem speaks of home. It speaks of this church. It speaks of this community in which this church is uh, placed. And our responsibility is first at home, to preach the gospel in the congregation because there are people who come to church who've never put their faith and trust in Christ and in the community. Secondly, Judea, that's the neighbourhood, that's a little further out. Then you've got Samaria. Well, they were enemies in their minds of the Jews of that day or people you find it hard to get along with. Uh, they are there for you to share with them and the whole world to pray, support, and even go. Our church, this church has embarked on his mission. I believe that. This church is called to embrace his mission. I believe you desire to do that and are doing it and I would encourage you to continue doing that. And our church is called to manifest 
his power in fulfilling his mission. Yet, we can so easily live as, he, as if he doesn't live in us. And we can easily, as individuals that is, but also as a church. And my last slide I want to put up here is, if God removed his spirit from this church today, would it make a difference? I'm not talking about tomorrow, next Sunday. I'm talking about a longer-term look at it. If God removed his spirit from us, what would it look like in 10 years from now? Let us embrace his mission and allow his spirit to be free to guide our elders, to guide our leaders of various ministries, to guide each one of us and to empower us as a community of God's people to be witnesses individually but also corporately as his church. The song we're going to sing now is a song that I, you already know, um, I understand, but it's the one I, I really love because it fits so well with the, uh, uh, with the theme of what we're looking at through the book of Acts, and especially today. Go forth in his name. In his name we do that. Thank you.